0: Hi everyone, welcome to History Respawn, I'm your host Bob Whitaker, and on today's show we're going to be running through a game of the year list for History Respawn, considering some of the history games that have come out this year, and suggesting some titles that maybe you can pick up for yourself, or perhaps for the historian in your life. Uh, With that said, joining me on today's show is Dr. John Harney. John, what's going on? Hey Bob, I'm doing well, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Uh, Just a quick note, we are trying out a new audio setup for this episode. So uh, if you like the way it sounds or if you don't like the way it sounds, please let us know in the comments uh, for this episode, wherever you uh, pick up this podcast. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, And with that said, I'm going to turn it over to John, uh, whose list of uh, history games of the year was kind of the genesis for this episode. So he's going to have to do the heavy lifting right now.
1: (laughs) I have a bit of a list. I do. Um, And I kind of I didn't rank them exactly. I I guess I had a, a top three and a bunch of honorable mentions, but coming right off the top and would have been the obvious one. And it's been a sign of how busy I've been the last three months that I didn't realize it came out this year until this morning. Uh, is Total War Three Kingdoms, mm. um, which was which is a really good game. Um, and, you know, I was nerding out and I was excited about it before as soon as it was announced. And when it came out, not only was it a Total War game set in, you know, third century China, which was exciting to me. That being, you know, what I got my PhD in and everything. Um, they they tweaked the formula of their game. Or it, What was interesting is they had like a two track thing. So if you'd like a more Crusader Kingsy character focused, slightly less realistic aspect of the gameplay, you can do that. And that's kinda of how we designed this new game. But you can also play it classic Total War style, except with Chinese generals and in a in a kind of a setting a lot like sixteenth century Japan. It's basically perfect mm-hmm. for strategy games. Um and I thought they they nailed the aesthetic, the art, the sound. It's just it's a great game. I think it's one of the best games going this year anyway. And it's probably the probably my favorite historically-themed, connected, whatever you want to call it, game of the year.
0: Now, you did the episode for History Respawn with Maggie Green about yeah. this game. And I'm wondering, you know, how much of the history do you think they got right in the end? Because you obviously played much more of the game than you revealed yeah, uh, with yeah, Maggie yeah. Green in that episode.
1: I think that, um, I think what was really interesting about that episode as well was that, uh, they're getting it about as right as anybody gets it, if that makes sense. Yes. In that this, this period of history is so legendary, not just in China, but in lots of countries that are near to China, like Japan and places like that. This is such a legendary moment in history, in world history, that you, you see it explored all the time. And sometimes you see it explored in artistic ways that just take massive, massive artistic license. And you take it and you see it explored in ways that try to be more supposedly resolute. But you know the actual, the actual histories of the time I mean, this is kind of a obvious thing to say, but they did reflect who won in the end. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And this kind of... And not just that, but the history of this particular period was also written and then later on edited and modified to this very kind of Confucian moralistic argument for, you know, harmony and why single governments are a good idea. And, all you know, so much of it was wrapped up in justifying the empires that lasted until the 20th century, um, that the game is actually admirable in the sense to how comfortably it sits in that company, mm-hmm. where I feel like some of the slightly more outlandish stuff is really Nowhere near as crazy as some of the treatments you'll see back in China. So I think what Maggie and I both shared our excitement of it was, you know, having lived in that part of the world and read and watched and played various media that, that play around that 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 um that setting. The Total War game was completely at home there. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't. I mean, this sounds overly simplistic, but it wasn't just you know a bunch of Western guys. Of course, speaking as a Western guy myself, of course, it wasn't a bunch of Western guys who made a complete you know, uh, a complete pig's ear, yeah. um, of this thing. Like the game plays like a game made by people who, who understand why this is such an important history and why it's so popular.
0: Right. That's impressive. And, you know, we've been talking about doing this kind of episode, in the future for a long time but we really do need to take some time and think about doing a series of games on kind of western developers adapting eastern history and then perhaps also the reverse of that eastern developers adapting western european uh in particular medieval history i mean i think there's really a great history respawn series in the making on You know, uh, Japanese views of medieval Europe. You know, from Castlevania Mm -hmm. to Dark Souls. Um, Right. So, yes, I yeah, that's. But that what you just said, I think, kind of gets to the heart of that kind of idea.
1: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Like you know, Dark Souls is such a a weird but interesting take on a kind of almost like a dank medievalism. And then in the West, we for a long time Jade Empire was kind of the hallmark. You know, which Jade Empire is a good game. You know, but it's just such an interesting thing um no but this was uh yeah total war didn't feel it didn't feel tied to a western development in the way that other games have done mm-hmm. it was it, it was really good it was really impressive awesome
0: so what's next on your
1: list next on I mean, the next couple of games came out quite recently one of them just came out so the the next one that just came out is unity of command 2 and mm. Um, which I just started playing a week ago. I bought it a week ago, and um, that is a great game. I had bought the first Unity of Command and played three minutes of it, which is, you know, I have a lot of games on my Steam list that are like that. Um, And I just kind of couldn't get past it, and I've always wanted to play war games. So for those who don't know, Unity of Command 2 is basically a classic hex-based war game. Now, it's not, you can turn the hexes on or off, and they're off by default. What that means is, you know, It's very grognardy, if people know that term. It's very, very, very rules-based. The manual has my head spinning. You know, it matters um, how well-supplied your troops are. It matters where they are, the terrain they're on, the terrain they're attacking, the movement they're making. There's so many calculations coming into how your unit goes against another unit and in terms of gameplay what makes unity of command 2 sing is that they've taken what is very important in many of these games which is the supply idea and they've made it the whole core of the game Mm -hmm. whereas it's a wonderful and this is what rock paper shotgun and other sites called it a great gateway drug to these much nerdier games (laughs) and i'm delighted because i was i was looking for a gateway drug to these kind of games because i (laughs) i should be the target like i was looking at gary Grigsby's. Uh, war in the East before this. It was on sale in the Steam sale. And I looked at it and I thought, I'll never play that. I'll, I'll never, I will buy it and I will never play it because it's just spreadsheets. Now, I know for a fact that I could find pure, unadulterated joy in that because I'm an effing history PhD. But I was like, I'll never do it. And Unity of Command 2 is this fantastic gateway drug. And it basically is, it, it It helps you figure out, okay, if I cut these guys' supply lines off, um, they're in real trouble. Which, of course, is exactly what the, you know, revolution of mobile warfare and World War Two was like. That was was the whole point. Yep. That's that's what the Nazis did for the first year and a half, right? Is they literally just kept going past you and now you can't do anything. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um that's how Unity Command Two works, and so and, and 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 so in that sense, it's it's a wonderful. I love that historical angle to it, and I'm going to have to try and do an episode on it before Christmas. And the other element of it, I didn't know until I started playing it, was um, as it goes on, which is nice. Um, you don't get this opportunity a huge amount of times, but for example, you're marching up through Italy, and it says, right, you can keep going the quote-unquote historical route, what they actually did. Or you can do this other scenario we built called Race for the Pennines, where you basically sprint up the east coast of Italy and try and rush up and, and kind of cut them off that way, which didn't actually happen. But we just created it as a fun alternative scenario. And so that's been um, that's been great. That's been a lot of fun. And then lots of little bits. Of, you know, this is a very, very, very detail oriented game. And so lots of Dominion troops are being featured. Oh, neat. Um, Yep. It's a nice little touch. So you see lots of, there's lots of Indian infantry units and some sort of African units as well um, under the under the umbrella of the British. Right. And So far, I, I think the whole game is going to be like this and there'll be future DLC campaigns. But at the moment, I've done both Overlord. I've started Overlord and I've gone up from northern Africa through uh, the boot of Italy. And you usually have an American wing and a British wing working in concert. Um, and and, and there have been so and I've seen Canadians, with African and Indian units are pretty common under the British flag yeah um it's a great it's a great game and and if anybody has any temptation at all to get into one of these really hardcore hex based war games, unity of command two is extraordinarily welcoming yeah um and wonderfully nerdy in the best possible <laughs> way I, I really like it. I really like it
0: well, that sounds great um uh, yeah, I just did an episode of history respawn a live stream with Chris kepshaw about Tannenberg yeah. and in that episode, I was kind of complaining about how the the wider world, uh, in world war one has kind of been lost. I feel like not just by games, but also by general historiography. So it's nice to hear that some of that element is being brought into this game revolved around, uh, the second world yeah. war. And I'm also glad to hear that they've maintained their focus on supply and logistics. You know, when you go back to the first unity of command, which was focused on the battle of Stallenberg, mm-hmm. um, or Stalingrad, I should say, Stalingrad. What's that? (laughs) Um, uh, Focus on the Battle of Stalingrad. You know, logistics was a really big part of how that game worked and, you know, getting supply and, you know, getting supply before and after uh, you've made your move. And, uh, you know, it's great to hear that they maintain that because, you know, logistics is one of those things that, I think makes for interesting gameplay, particularly in these uh, digital simulations, maybe not so much in a board game, but definitely in a, mm-hmm. a digital simulation where you're not having to move pieces or, you know, uh, do, right. the, do the math that the computer Constantly can do for you. mark somebody is out of supply. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's great. And I think that's actually one of the great strengths of historical strategy games because, you know, that tends to be an area of history And I could say this having studied military history for most of my life, you know, that's kind of tends to be in historiography, one of the missing dimensions of a lot of historical work is logistics is supplies, you know, everybody wants to talk about the generals, they want to talk about the view uh, from the trenches, they want to talk about, um, you know, air power, all of this stuff, but nobody really wants to talk about the supply sergeant, or, you know, what his job is, and, you know, how he moves goods and services around to these armed forces. And so, I think, you know, even in a very kind of uh, limited way, whatever these types of games can do uh, to include that narrative in the game and in this, uh, uh, you know, historical narrative they got for the Second World War, I think that's fantastic.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, Unity of Command, too, I've had such an interesting journey with it when... I first opened it and I was playing it and I've 10 minutes in. I thought I've made a huge mistake. I don't think <laughs> I don't think this is for me at all. And then I figured out. And so basically you should constantly be holding down the button that shows you your supply routes. Mm-hmm. And you can hold down a button that shows the enemy supply routes and you figure out pocketing and everything else. And I can't help myself. I still overextend now and again. So at the moment I'm trying to take Rome mm-hmm. um, this morning. I woke up in the middle of the night and for no reason and went down and played a war game for two hours. And um I have overextended, and so I am now slowly losing this scenario. <laughs> um, and yet I'm hooked, I'm completely hooked on it, um, and I want to see what happens. I also will say one thing that they could do a bit better. Uh, they do have a manual you can download, which I'm actually reading through because they basically everyone's either infantry or um, armoured, or mobile armoured units. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but there's lots and lots of like commandos and artillery as attachments and stuff, and it's just. There's huge depth to it that I'm looking forward to getting into, but you don't actually need to get into it to be able to play the game. And it reminds you of Crusader Kings 2 in that sense.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Crusader Kings 2 has enormous depth to it. I love that game. I've played so much Crusader Kings 2. And to be honest, I've only ever really learned enough to just enjoy it. And, mm-hmm. and you need that to actually be playable by people. It's, yeah, it's it's a, it's so far, hopefully I'll feel the same way, but about 10, 12 hours in, I, I think it's
0: outstanding. Awesome. Uh, so what's your final game? You said you had three
1: yeah, my final one came out relatively recently as well, and it's a little bit—it's um, a little bit of an odd one. It's Disco Elysium by ZAUM, we mm. talked about recently, mm-hmm. in this podcast. So, Disco Elysium is in a completely um, fictional setting, and um, for people who don't know or didn't hear us talk about it before, it's theoretically like a Baldur's Gate-style computer RPG game. Um, in the sense that you have a party, it's only of two people. They have stats, they have characteristics, they can level up, and there's lots and lots of conversations and conversation trees. Where Disco Elysium is different is that, for example, your skills are things like um, being able, you know, being good at taking recreational drugs mm-hmm. and, and being able to, cert- you know, um, um, see it in other people. Oh, that guy's on such and such a drug and using it to your advantage. You are a cop who has woken up with the worst hangover of his life. Um, and is possibly having a psychotic event. Um, The whole thing is set in a kind of a present day adjacent fictional reality. It was made by these Estonian developers who live in London. And basically, you're living in a state that has gone through a kind of a communist phase. Um, It was kind of started out as an empire. Um, And so you meet these people who are very, very much you meet racists. Basically, Mm -hmm. Uh, you encounter paraphernalia, uh, very far right paraphernalia you meet self-avowed communists, you meet people who are definitely left-wing, but not as far as that. So, you know, in the first kind of quarter of the game, at least, and really for most of the game, um, a trade union dispute is actually central or, or is kind of attached to this murder that you're investigating. Um, and I, it definitely counts, as it were, as a history game for me because they've they put, they've really captured like how racism works. They've kind of captured how the iconography of of, of fascism works. So for example, mm-hmm. I just I broke into this guy's apartment early in the game um, as a favor for the kind of apparently crooked leader of the trade union. Mm. Um, Other trade unionists, they kind of know he's a crook, but they're okay with it because he's basically he's setting up for them in this in this dispute with the employer. And you've broken into this guy's apartment and it's not really clear why the trade union leader doesn't like him. But his apartment has these this kind of far right far right paraphernalia. And so he has this flag which is kind of a sun with lots of little suns around it, which apparently was the original flag of this country, Revanchal, where the game is based. Mm-hmm. And The game just kind of explains to you, um, oh, when you see this flag, you know exactly what the guy's political orientation is. And it kind of explains it for you why that's the case. Mm. And your character has the chance to turn to your partner and say, this is the right flag. This is the flag that should be up all the time. Or look at this stupid flag or something more non-committal. And so your character is regularly given a chance to, you know, you could role play this as an, as a fascist racist,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> or as a communist or as a communist racist, or, you know, and, 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 and you could, you could become, become that. And so your partner in the early, the first kind of NPC you can partner with is of a race that kind of corresponds to being effectively kind of East Asian in, in our, in, in, in real life mm-hmm. um, in the logic of the game. It's just this, a different race. And so if you do racist things, he just kind of, you know, <laughs> He's not very happy, you know, mm-hmm. um, but the game doesn't stop you doing that. And so I, I just think that uh, the game engages with kind of the language and I'm going to get super nerdy, like the discourses of all these kind of ideologies in a way that's really effective. It's mm. really well.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked about that in a pretty extended amount, I think, in the last podcast that we did. That's right. I'm glad to hear that you're still enjoying it. And, you know, it's a game that's gotten really good reviews. I think uh, GameSpot gave it a 10 out of 10. And, you know, GameSpot is kind of notorious for being one of these websites where they're very stingy uh, with their perfect score games. And so I think the other day I saw a whole article on GameSpot about Uh, why Disco Elysium deserved a 10 out of 10 you know after the review came out and you know kind of comparing it to these other uh, 10 out of 10 games like uh, you know Zelda Ocarina of Time and whatnot uh, so it's you know it's something that's gotten a lot of uh, critical buzz um, and you know just being out there on Twitter and reading uh, articles it seems like a lot of players have enjoyed it as well so that's great. Yeah, I think it's really interesting
1: because I've been, you know, I've, I've just finished Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy, which if you like science fiction, I really encu- I really encourage you to read it. And and he he writes about nature a lot in those books. And I've just been thinking about how historical fiction works and why it makes sense to to mine history, as it were, for stories. And then I kind of came was back, came back to Scholesium. And I hadn't really thought about it quite that way before of actually how indebted it is to a use of history mm-hmm. um, and obviously completely different use of history to, for example, unity mm. of command Two right. within total war three kingdoms. Yeah. But still, you know, just fascinating nonetheless.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Um, well I was kind of looking over my list of games that I've played this year and I think, you know, I, it's, it was kind of a weird year. I think for historical games, there wasn't a mainline, uh, Assassin's Creed release, for instance. Um, right. You know, some of the other hyped, historical games that came out this year were kind of, they got tepid reviews, I would say. Ancestors Mm -hmm. uh, and then Warsaw in particular. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, there was uh, the French Revolution game, We the Revolution, which I I missed, unfortunately. I'm hoping to come back to that at the beginning of next year. Um, But a couple of games that I just kind of want to remind people of that we covered on History Respawn uh, were Heaven's Vault, which is the kind of sci-fi archaeology game. Uh, And then uh, Strollogaster, which was the uh, narrative, uh, cartoonish uh, game about, uh, uh, you know, basically about medicine, but then also magic uh, in Elizabethan London. And uh, both of those games are relatively cheap. I think they're both under $20. uh, And they're both just a lot of fun. Like, they're the type of games where you can dip into for an afternoon. Uh, in play for a couple hours and not really get uh, caught up in them, maybe in the same way that you would with Disco Elysium or Total War or Univ- Unity of Command. Uh, but, you know, these days I really kind of appreciate a game where I can just jump into for a couple hours and then jump right out and not get caught up in because I've got so many other things going on in my life. And I think those games are really easy to recommend if you're just looking to spend an afternoon uh, in yeah. a digital world. Um And I think, you know, I've said more about these games through the podcast and also through the episodes that I did uh, for those games. But uh, just, you know, keep those games in mind. I mean, I think they aren't as sexy as some of the other titles (laughs) that I I mentioned. You know, it's certainly not like a mainline Assassin's Creed game. It's not like a Total War game. Uh, But at the same time, they are uh, quality games that do really interesting things. I think Heaven's Vault in particular Uh, with what it does with narrative and how the narrative progresses forward based on how uh, you approach uh, each area as an archaeologist. I think that's really interesting uh, and a compelling idea. And, uh, you know, it's a game that I think got some good critical reviews, but, uh, you know, wasn't the kind of runaway bestseller that you would hope to see in that instance. So hopefully more people can discover it uh, going into next year.
1: I, I I think and connecting that back to Disco Elysium, I think one of the reasons Disco Elysium got, has gotten such rave reviews is it feels hard for a game to break through and be kind of a game success, but also an artistic success, which I find very ironic because you just you just listed off a reel of games that are just that are well worth people's time. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just and, and we're and we're confining ourselves, as is the nature of the podcast, to games with some kind of an historical connection. Yeah um i know people are sick of hearing me gush about this but i just i'm overwhelmed by just the sheer choice available to video game fans like oh, you I can know. be you can be such a snob now as a video game fan yeah. you couldn't be 10 years ago you just like you could just refuse to touch a gears of war game or whatever you know whatever you yeah. consider mainstream <clears> and only play you know indie games like astral astral lager and stuff and um and you'd still be really well served <laughs> there's still so many good games it so. is a,
0: it's outrageous the The variety of games, the quality of all games, you know, it's funny, we've talked about this before, I think just uh, between the two of us, maybe not on the show, but, you know, a lot of up and coming video game players and also video game critics uh, who were born in the 90s, um, they always complain about people our age, you know, talking about... Zelda having this encyclopedic knowledge of uh, Mario brother games, uh, <laughs> knowing everything there is to know about something like Metal Gear Solid. And it's it's not we have that knowledge, not necessarily because those games were fantastic, but because they were the only games to play right? And yeah, so, exactly. you know, that that kind of knowledge uh, shouldn't be mistaken for the quality of those titles. Not to say that, you know, those games are bad, but it's just that that's all we had to play. And so we all, all us oldies, we all have that shared knowledge, that shared idea of video games, because that was all we had, right? It's, it's like, um, you know, It's a bit like uh, having knowledge of the Bible because it's the only book that's available. And then all of a sudden novels come out in the 18th century and just blow everybody's mind, right? It's a bit like that, right? We had one text. We were obsessed with that text. We talk about that text all the time. And then all of a sudden we're going through this period now where there's all sorts of new texts. There's new things. There's new content. Uh, And so, you know, it's just, it's a great time to play games.
1: the phenomenon of the JRPG in the 1990s in the Western world—I, I, I, of course, there are younger people who do understand it. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. maybe it's something one of us has tried the history of it because it's just hard to explain. Of course, Final Fantasy games now have a massive fan base and everything else, but when seven, eight, nine, when those games were coming out, everybody played those games. Yes. Yeah. Like everybody did. Yeah. Like whereas now, and okay, I have kids and everything, but even if I even if I was younger, had all the time in the world, there's just you just can't get
0: dogs. Oh, I know. Well, and you were talking about the latest Fire Emblem game, and you know that's right. a game that fascinates me as well, but I just don't have time, you know, and so I I that makes me appreciate the job that game journalists do more. And I know, yes. you know, people like to complain about game journalism and the quality of reviews, you know, uh, the debate about whether or not to have a review score, etc. Uh, but I feel like, you know, that kind of work is now essential for me because I just I don't have the time to play all these games. And so even if I just get like a little bit of knowledge about those games uh, and even if I don't end up playing it myself, it's still useful for me to kind of get an overall picture of video games, of computer games uh, when, you know, I'm just not in a place, I'm not in any condition <laughs> physically <Yeah>. either uh, <laughs> to play all of these titles.
1: Right. And I, I, I remember a few years ago the idea of watching a Let's Play, I scoffed at that, and now it's just like, no, sometimes I really would like to get a sense of a game. It's essential. And I just don't yeah. know if I'll ever, I'll ever play it. It's essential, so, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, but they they keep coming. I wonder if we should – I, I can't. It makes me so sad to say this, but I can't recommend Wolfenstein Youngblood for people. Oh, to get. I just yeah. don't think I can recommend it. And that's a pity because actually I just didn't enjoy playing that game as much as I thought mm-hmm. I would, which is a real pity because it continues Machine Game's solid run of just they're still approaching this historical concept of actual Nazism with a kind of a genre touch that I, I really dig what they're doing. Yeah. With their aesthetic. Yeah. I I wish that game was more fun to play.
0: Yeah, I do, too. I think that it's really clear from the time that I spent with it. And after we did our uh, live stream, I ended up finishing the game. And I think it's really clear that they just have a fantastic research and then art department as well. Like the conceptual art, the time that they take to craft those worlds uh, is really Remarkable. I mean, it's just it, the work comes through and it's very impressive. But uh, I think the gameplay uh, for those games is it's hard to recommend. And I would even say that a little bit for uh, the Wolfen, the main Wolfenstein uh, New Order series, you know, uh, New Order and then the New Colossus. Uh, I think those games are a little bit rough uh, to play, especially when you compare them to other uh, modern day shooters you know something like uh, doom 2016 or you know call of duty obviously battlefield um, you know but even something like uh, dishonored you know dishonored is something that melds uh, first person mm-hmm. combat with stealth and I think it's just way more satisfying than what you get <laughs> out of Wolfenstein. I would almost wish you know if if I were running Bethesda I would almost want to combine. Uh, the Wolfenstein team with the Dishonored team and, you know, maybe mm. take the conceptual elements from Wolfenstein and marry that with the gameplay elements of, of the Dishonored. And I think that that would be really, really satisfying. And it's, that's something I, I, I think about quite a bit, you know, and this yeah. kind of counterfactual uh, Bob is, you know, overlord <laughs> of game development.
1: <laughs> but I think they're also the machine games ethos They're I think they're going for a gameplay style that would feel like an old school gaming style, even though it's very different from actual the way we actually played video games
0: in the 1990s. Mm-hmm.
1: But the thing is that the new Doom games are already doing that. Yeah. And yeah. doing it really effectively. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So. And it's hard to compete with that. I mean, and yeah. I've said many times on this podcast this year, this fall in particular, I was waiting for Doom Eternal <laughs> and it didn't come out this year. And so that was a big disappointment for me. And it, it took me a while uh, to recover <laughs> from that disappointment to be completely honest. Um but it did give me some time to play some other games, a lot of games on my uh backlog of uh you know Steam games and uh, PS4 games. Uh and I finally got around to starting to play the or actually I should say replaying uh the Assassin's Creed titles, uh, especially the ones that oh, came wow. out as remastered on uh PS4 and on PC. And this past week I finished up Assassin's Creed Two, uh, which is a game that came out ten years ago. Uh wow. funny enough, it makes me feel really old. I'm sure it has the same effect on you. <laughs> and that's
1: that's the game that you, you talked me into Assassin's Creed 2. I yes. don't know if you remember this. Yes. Because I had played the first one and I'm mean, people who haven't played the first game, the first game ends with an inexplicably bad forty five so minute bad. long. It's so, battle.
0: Like, it's so bad It's so bad. So <laughs> bad.
1: And um but Bob, you talked me into two, and you were 100% right. Yeah.
0: And, so you know, it's funny. Here's the sequence for the listeners. You know, 10 years ago, John and I were in graduate school together at the University of Texas at Austin. John was knee-deep into video games at the time, and I had sworn off games during graduate school. And he had convinced me to start playing games again. I had borrowed <laughs> his Xbox and played the new Gears of War back in 2007, I think, and that got me on board. I got an Xbox. I started playing these games. And we just had this reciprocal reciprocal relationship with uh, buying a game, giving it to the other person, and playing it, and then giving it back. And Assassin's Creed 2 was one of those titles. And I I just, I mean, if there was an origin point for History Respawn as a series and as an idea, it's Assassin's Creed 2. Because I played that game, and I was just I was blown away by the way that it melded, you know, this action adventure gameplay, you know, that has a long lineage going back to Prince of Persia. uh, And then, you know, mirroring that with this historical narrative, which I just thought was fascinating. Now, you know, that narrative has a lot of problems. Uh, It's going back and replaying it. There's some uh, questionable use of different dialects uh, for Italians in particular, that's uh, a little troubling. Uh, But at the same time, that game still has this certain magic where uh, you really feel a sense of place. You really feel a sense of uh, the Renaissance world uh, during that period, and it's still a lot of fun to play. Although I would say that it took a long time, uh, in replaying it recently, it took a long time to get reused to the control scheme. Of that game, um, and for those of you who have played Assassin's Creed, you will remember that you know there's kind of two halves to the Assassin's Creed series. You know, there's the early Assassin's Creed games, you know, the first game, second game, all the Ezio games, and then kind of going up through Black Flag and Unity and Syndicate. And then after that point, you get to Origins and Odyssey, which become much more modern in terms of their RPG sensibilities, but also in terms of their control schemes, where movement and traversal is ridiculously simple, right? It's basically just pushing forward on the controller. But back in the earlier Assassin's Creed games, and especially in Assassin's Creed 2, you had to be very present when you were attempting to scale buildings, when you are attempting to jump across uh, the roof of a building. Uh, you had to have the right buttons pressed down. You have to have a kind of situational awareness. Uh, and if you fall, you've got to hit a button to grab onto something, right? Otherwise you're just going to fall right down the side of a building. Uh, so movement and traversal in the older games, was really difficult. It was something you had to think about. Uh, and that took a long time for me to get back into. Um, but, As far as things that I really appreciate about Assassin's Creed 2 and things that I I miss from this era of Assassin's Creed games is I miss the the long setup for the assassination. So the game is kind of broken up uh, into different assassination targets. And for each one of those targets, you've got to do a series of missions that set up the ultimate assassination of the target. And this is something that Assassin's Creed 1 and Assassin's Creed 2 really had in common. And... I love the fact that, you know, you had to to build up to the assassination. You couldn't just go out and murder somebody, right? You had to to plan it out. You had to make sure you weren't caught, uh, both during the act and then afterwards. And it really has the feel of, I don't know, kind of a heist film. Or, you know, the way in which, you know, you might actually plan out something like this. And I feel like it gave the game a lot of momentum, not just throughout the course of the game, but then also between the actual levels or the actual missions. And that's something I really miss. I mean, the modern day RPG elements of Assassin's Creed are wonderful, right? They give it an open world feel. You know, you can go anywhere, you can do anything. Uh, But I feel as far as the, you know, the focus of the series, which is being an assassin, the modern games have kind of missed that. And that's something that I really appreciated going back and playing in Assassin's Creed 2.
1: Yeah, like the more, I think in in Odyssey at least, there's just guys pop up. You find them, you kill them, you run off, and yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then in the, I don't know, I can't remember if they still do this. Remember the earlier earlier games as well. That also be this moment, in this kind of alternate, not the alternate reality. What's a, the, the 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 thing you're in? The animus, the animus. You're in the Animus, of course. Yeah. But Anyway, the kind of the you know um, the only things being rendered are you and the person you just assassinated. Yes, and he would you would kind of have this little moment you know, where you would kind of acknowledge <laughs> you had killed him. Um, yeah, they kind of dropped the assassin part, you know. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. No, I think that's too bad, and but it's still, the modern games are great too. I'm I'm not trying to denigrate those at all, but uh, I do miss the deliberate nature of the earlier Assassin's Creed titles. Um, although I, I was quite annoyed with the, the modern-day storyline in as Assassin's Creed 2. Um, when I played it back in 2009, I really got into the, the kind of Dan Brown-ness uh, <laughs> of those yeah. uh, sequences. But now that I know how the story ends and how disappointing that was, it's just kind of like, oh, let's let's get through this. I just want to play as Ezio the entire time.
1: Yeah, that, was, that seemed like such an oddball fun, crazy thing. Yeah. But you know, you live and learn. Um yeah, it's crazy where it's funny actually talking about the remastered versions are now coming out. One of my honorable mentions was also Age of Empires Two Definitive Edition. Oh, have you played that? I've played a bit of it. It's actually on the Xbox Game Pass. Mm-hmm. Um which I think the Xbox Game Pass is fantastic. I have it on my PC and I'm, you know, I feel comfortable I'm getting my $5 a month worth out of it when they eventually ramp that up. We'll see. But, um, <laughs> so that's how I, that's how I've played it. And what really struck me was, I guess I was, it's it's clearly been updated, um, to work on modern machines and it looks nice on modern machines, but, and they, they've made some small little quality of life changes, but a lot of the interface and even the style and the story and everything is, is, is very, very similar. So for example, I mean for one thing it's it's a 1990s RTS that's what it is mm-hmm. and so you go down to the bottom fifth of your page and it's got all these different squares and they look like slightly nicer versions of the buttons you could press back in the 1990s. It's, really, it's like, wow. And then Definitive Edition, it has everything. So you can go to Asia and you can take do Tamerlane campaigns or you can do Sun Tzu, you can stay in Europe, you can do all these different things. Um, it would be a great gift if there's uh, some uh, you know someone in your life who loves these kinds of games, who's in their late 30s, early 40s, who <laughs> might have played the original. Um, I could see, and I'll be honest, I wasn't the biggest Age of Empires guy. I liked it, but if you have special place in your heart for those games you'd be crazy not to get this definitive edition yeah um and very meta in the sense of like it really does make me feel old too it's mm-hmm. like wait they're doing a remastered what okay really you know <laughs> it's just yeah. age of empires 2 is now you know for for people for for a teenage video game person now an age of empires game would be like what taxi driver was to me when it was a teenager yeah you know a recent ish classic yeah but still a classic you
0: yeah know? Yeah, I, I was definitely a big player of Age of Empires 2. I played it online. I played it in land parties with friends, and that was a game that uh, really set me down. Uh, I, I, you couldn't say a Wikipedia rabbit hole because Wikipedia didn't exist didn't back exist. then when it came out, but maybe an encyclopedia rabbit hole with medieval <laughs> history and medieval weaponry and you know Joan of Arc and... Uh, Charlemagne and uh, Barbarossa and all of these uh, historical figures from uh, the medieval time period and uh, you know it was a game that I think uh, it probably shows its age with regards to the uh, historical material in it you know I haven't played the definitive edition I haven't played the game in 20 years but uh, I think it was just enough for teenage Bob uh, to kind of, you know, imagine himself, to get a sense of place, to get a sensibility yeah. of yeah. the time period that was compelling and made it certainly more interesting for me than most of the other popular RTS titles at the time. You know, I remember uh, playing playing Warcraft 2, playing uh, Starcraft, and just not finding those very interesting because I felt like the setting wasn't compelling. It was too cartoonish yeah. for me, <laughs> but, you know, something like Age of Empires 2 really really grab my imagination
1: and age of empires is interesting because it's not pulpy isn't the right word but it's got the same vibe of like i was reading a book to day on european history and it's one of these kind of old style books where he's throwing out tamerlane like everyone knows who that is you know <laughs> like this you know this the great great conqueror of central Asia, right? Uh-huh. leisure yeah, like yeah. rival a great rival to the ottomans as they were coming into existence yeah. and i'm just like Oh, okay. And Age of Empires has that vibe of like well, you know who this is, you know, like oh, yeah. like the uh, the tutorial is your William Wallace fighting against evil longshanks, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's the kind of that's what they're going for. Yeah, they they hit it, you know, they hit it. <laughs> uh, it's actually been an interesting year for you know the classic history you know not god game exactly but if you like looking at maps and interacting with them this is the year for you you know imperator rome came out this year Mm -hmm. which deserves honorable mention if for nothing else that if you've ever heard me rant on about crusader kings 2 or if you are interested in europa universalis one of these games you don't know how to get into it imperator rome is the is the easiest to get into game they've made so far um still kind of tricky, but they've gotten so much better at actually showing you how the game actually works and how you can have fun with it, which bodes well for Crusader Kings 3. Um, and then the only the last one out of on my list was this game, Cards, with a K.
0: Have I talked to you about that, Bob? Uh, yeah, I think you wrote an article about it yeah, for HistoryRespawn.com. That's right.
1: It was in um, it was in beta for a long time, and now it's on Steam. And it's a card game like Hearthstone or Gwent, one of these games that's online. So for some people, that's an instant no. Um, I like those kinds of games sometimes, and it's just kind of intriguing. And you can be the Japanese, you can be the Germans, you can be the Americans, the British, and they've tried to give each deck its kind of own strength that makes sense. So I, I'm trying to remember now. It's uh, I think the Japanese who haven't played in a while are very good at like fast-paced attacks, very quick. You know, and mm. I think. The British have some kind of naval, you know, <laughs> flair to it. Um, and so that's been coming along nicely because these games, there's kind of, I'm never sure how much of a market there really is for digital card games. Mm-hmm. Uh, cards seems to have a core, as fitting its theme, I think, a bit like Flames of War, which is a tabletop miniature game based in World War 2 They've got just enough deeply committed, nerdy, but friendly people to mm-hmm. make it work.
0: Mm. So <laughs> Awesome. All right.
1: So a pretty good year and um, kind of a retro year, like I said, in that sense. A lot, of, a lot of those games are the kind of, you know, like Age of Empires, of course, is a remaster. Imperator Rome, Unity of Command 2, Total War Three Kingdoms, these are all games of a style or of a genre that I was playing 25 years ago <laughs> on my
0: computer. It's funny how those styles are still really popular and they're still compelling. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time this year playing the expansions for civilization six, which uh, were still great. And, you know, I'm looking forward, you know, in this following year, uh, 2020 to playing kind of the, uh, established AAA titles that we're used to, you know, something like battlefield, um, you know, obviously assassin's creed fits into that as well. You know, maybe we'll get another civilization game next year. We'll see. Um, but you know, it's an exciting time to play games. And in particular, it's an exciting time to be into, uh, historical games, partly because so many of them are being made, but also because the genres that usually support historical games, namely strategy games, action adventure games, um, they're really popular right now. Um, and they're kind of experiencing a Renaissance. And so that, that bodes well for, uh, people who are into history and games and into history respawn.
1: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, and I'm, I'm delighted, and it just goes to show how much the overall video game community—if you can even call it that anymore—just keeps growing and growing and growing. Yeah. You know, like there was a definitely a period where I think a lot of people assumed that you know RTSs were dead and that strategy games were dead, and I well, I think RTSs have a little bit of a way to come back. To be fair, um, but uh, oh, like you know, Amplitude is taking on um for access next year with mm-hmm. with um with their kind of civ rival yeah it's there's you know there's never been a better time to sit and contemplatively play slow moving video games which <laughs> which if you like history is probably a good fit for you yeah
0: yeah we're we're we tend to be a sedentary bunch uh, <laughs> yeah yeah indeed uh, well i think that does it for today's episode of history respawn john thank you so much for joining me on this one
1: thank you bob it's always fun
0: yeah uh, so if you want to learn more about History Respawn, uh, please go to historyrespawn.com. Uh, we are also, of course, on YouTube uh, and on SoundCloud and all the other major podcast hosts have got our episodes. So please check us out there. If you're interested in supporting History Respawn, please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash respawn. Uh, And with that said, please do leave us some comments on this episode regarding the sound quality. Uh, We've, uh, again, upgraded uh, some of our audio recording capabilities, so hopefully that's coming through in this episode. I'm really eager to go back and edit this episode. Hopefully it'll be easier than it usually is. Um, But with that said, uh, please uh, have a good holiday season, uh, and we wish you the very best in the new year. And we will be back uh, in 2020 with more episodes of History Respond. Take care.